Well, this morning, uh, again, this is the second in a series of four uh, in which we look at lives transformed, hearts transformed, lives transformed, and uh, communities transformed. Last week, we talked about a widow transformed. Today, we'll talk about a soldier transformed. Next week, a Levite transformed. You may think a Levite, yeah, but I, none of, you know, how many of us in here are Levites? Well, um, there's an analogy for us today. And then finally, uh, the fourth in the series is a brother transformed. And you might be surprised at that one. Uh, but they all have something to tell us. Now, um, <clears throat> there are those who would say that uh, soldiering is not a God-honoring profession. And I would just say, what would they do with David? Uh, what would they do with with others who were deliverers by God in the days of the judges, and they would answer, well, that was for Old Testament days. Today we worship the Prince of Peace, and soldiers really is not a vocation for, for believers. But the interesting thing to me is, I say, where in Scripture do you find that? You see, we need policemen within society in order to, uh, to um, restrain evil within society because it's a fallen world. And I'm thankful for the officers of the law who are honest and do their job and put their lives on the line just as those um, firemen do with respect to fire and, and our military members do when they stand in the breach for us because there are also outlaws among nations. And so uh, it's interesting to me that when the soldiers came to John the Baptist People were repenting and coming to John and saying, what shall we do? And he was baptizing. What does he say? Change your profession. He didn't say that. He said two things. Be content with your wages and don't do violence to anyone. Violence, well, then they can't do war and they should leave their profession. See, it's implied there. No, no, if that's what he meant, he'd have said it. Need to understand that soldiers in those days took advantage often of the fact that they had the weapons and other people generally didn't. You know, government tried to say, you know, gun control. I'm sorry, sword control. They would have, be the only ones who would have it. See, and um, and the the soldiers would often take advantage of it. And they, when they entered a city, if, they, if there were a war and they conquered a city, what would they do? They would pillage and rape and burn. Violence and greed. When the city of Constantinople fall, fell for three days, the Muslim Turkish armies pillaged that city. Raping, killing, stealing, and burning. Soldiers of every age have had that temptation. It's only good discipline that restrains them from doing that. And so when they came to John the Baptist, he says, do violence to no one and be content with your wages. That means you soldier as a calling, <laughs> not as an opportunity to get something for yourself in greed. It's not rapacious. Soldiers came to Jesus, and God sent Peter to a soldier's home. In each and every case, there is no rebuke for their profession. I say that 
because I had been a soldier, well, a sailor, <laughs> and uh, spent much of my life in service to my country. I put my life on the line in combat in distant shores. Thankless at the time, I can assure you. But the point is, those are callings if they're done from the right motive. Today we come to a passage in the scripture in which Jesus has an encounter with a soldier. It's not just any soldier. He's the head beagle, if you will, the top soldier for his district. He's a centurion. He has at least 100 soldiers under him. He may have been a cohort centurion with 600. There were two levels of centurion. We don't know which of those he was. There's not a distinction in the New Testament between those two grades. But we have an encounter nonetheless. Now there is a um, parallel passage in the two to the one we're going to be reading from in the Synoptic Gospels, and that comes in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 8, that parallels this one we're going to read from Luke, chapter 7. Now, there's one principal distinction and a secondary one uh, as well, but the one principal distinction between the two is that in our account, we read that the centurion sends delegation. In the Matthean account, it says the centurion requested of Jesus. And the intimation is that he trotted out and personally, you know, said, Jesus, I really... But that's clearly not the case in Luke. What is it, a contradiction? Of course not, the infallible word of God. We have to understand it from the eyes of the writers there. If you send a delegation to extend a certain message, you have made that request. It happens today. What's an ambassador? He speaks for your president in Congress. The ambassador says this, then you've said that. We have federal representation all the time. (laughs) And that's the case here. The centurion through a delegation is urgently asking Jesus to come to his home. Now that presents a dilemma, and we're going to come to that. But the second um, distinction is at the very end, where Jesus, in the Matthew account, makes an additional statement that is not here recorded by Luke, but it's not denied, and that's where Jesus says, I'll tell you, I'll tell you something true. Now, everything Jesus says is true, but when he says, I tell you the truth, he's saying, get this, it's really important. (laughs) He says, some will come from the east and from the west, the north and the south. That is all the Gentile nations. That's the intimation. And sit down with Abraham in the heavenly banquet. And the sons of the kingdom, many of them, will be cast into outer darkness. You see, there's a warning. There's an open-armed invitation, and there's a warning. There's a double-edged, deuteronomic, if you will, sword of promise and of judgment, of blessing and of warning. And I want you to know that, because as we read the Lucan account, that's all there. 
Let's begin then in Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. It's in your bulletin uh, insert if you haven't brought your Bibles. If you did bring your Bibles, and that's something I encourage, then follow along in the translation you have at hand. I'll be reading from the New International Version, which our Pastor Mike often uses. And by the way, he'll be back in about five weeks for those who are visiting, and I'll be among the most Happy to see him return <laughs> so I can sit with my wife through the whole service and hear God's word from someone else. But this is a privilege, and I'm thankful for it. Here then, the word of God, Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. When Jesus had finished all this in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. A centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to meet him, asking him to come heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to this servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Thus far in God's word, inerrant and sure, let's look to him again in prayer. Heavenly Father, would your spirit Instruct me in my tongue. Would you guard the ears of those who hear, that they might compare Scripture with Scripture, and listen to the promptings of your Spirit in their heart. May each of us come this day to a clear understanding of what you, the living God, say to us. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that especially as we see Jesus, that we might truly behold him as he is, the Son of God and Savior of the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Why do bad things happen to good people? Quite a question, you know. Problem of suffering. Uh, in my uh, teaching of different classes, some world religions, some uh, non-Western civilization history, and so different things that we talk, worldviews, other courses like that. One of the things that uh, is clear to me and that I've endeavored to share with other students 
um, is this, that there has never arisen a civilization that has amounted to anything and has accomplished anything that has not grappled with the issue of the significance of human existence. And the significance of human existence is directly tied to one's notion of justice. That's twisted to another word in our day, fairness, which is not the same thing. Fair means everybody's treated exactly the same. To be just is not that. It's to say, we all get what we deserve. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> I'm glad I haven't always gotten what I deserve, aren't you? See, we have a God of grace as well as a God of justice. But you see, in all the worlds, as cultures and civilizations grapple with these issues, they see people who are nice guys and gals. Terrible things happen to them. And they have to say, why? It didn't pay them, apparently, to be nice. Or somebody does really nasty things and they seem to get away with it and they seem to have everything thereafter. People say, how is that so? What justice is there? Why should I live with integrity? Not just like they do, grasp for all I can selfishly. You see, there are two basic uh, answers that are given to that before, before the revelation of God comes into the world in Old Testament times and then through the New Testament. And of course, I would suggest that Islam is really a, a um, Christian heresy, that it spins off. That'll probably put me under a fatwa from some mullah, but, but I believe it's true that Therefore, when you see this distinction in what I would call the biblical religions, those that have been influenced by God's revelation through the scriptures, you see a third answer, and it's very different. In the East, they would say, oh, well, much of Asia, um, there must be fairness there. This person was so good, and yet they had everything bad happen to them. They must have done something really naughty in a previous life. And it's okay that this happened to them because they're paying that off, and they will satisfy karma, and in their next life, who knows, maybe they'll come back as a better person and have a better life, maybe in a higher position. See, that's one. The wheel of rebirth, samsara. Hinduism has that. Much of Buddhism has that, not all. And there are other, Shainism and so on, in the Far East. And then you have, uh, in the West, uh, the Greeks, the Romans, the barbarian Teutonic people. And they would say, oh, well, it doesn't have anything to do with your integrity or your karma. It has everything to do with a whim of gods. And if they like you, you've got it made. And if they don't, no matter what you do, you're doomed. And you can't count on these gods. You just sort of try to keep them on side as best you can and stay out of their way. Or else, try to buy one off so that they become your patron. 
Now, that's the answer of the Teutonic uh, Norsemen, my forebears. That's the answer of the ancient Greeks and the answer of the Romans, by and large. But there's a third way. You see, God's revelation to us and the scriptures that comes to us down through Old Testament and then New Testament times is this. That after death, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment. A judgment. Now, there's some of this in ancient Egypt where there's an idea that there's a, a, a judgment after your death and then so on, you, you go from there. There's a notion of it, but by the way, you didn't have that notion until the Israelites come down to uh, dwell among them. It's interesting. I know I'm getting into the dating of the Exodus and things like that. That's off off topic this morning, but I would just suggest that what we have is biblical revelation that says payday someday. The accounts don't always balance in this life, but they will. They will. And that does give meaning and significance to our lives. And so, to the answer to the question, why do bad things happen to good people? That's the first part. That there is a judgment, there is significance. The second part is to recognize we live in a fallen world. And that we ourselves have been contaminated from birth by the inherited sin of our race. Theologians call, theologians call that original sin. The scripture just speaks of it as in Adam, all die. But then there's hope. In Christ, all that is all in him, represented by him, shall be made alive. So there is this new strand, you see. And when Christians face suffering, we can know that God is there and sees it. And Jesus says, even a sparrow doesn't fall to the, flat, to the ground or a hair of your head without your heavenly Father's knowledge. He provides, provides the food that is needed for the animals and the birds. He'll provide for you. Jesus said, oh, you of little faith, there's a God in heaven. He cares for his universe. He will judge it one day. We're a part of a fallen world in between the fallen Eden, the first sin that entered our race, and the coming again of our Savior. We're in between, but we're following. We're in that strain after Calvary and the resurrection, Easter. And that gives us a wonderful perspective and a grand hope. It's interesting that um, um, we often wrestle with suffering. And perhaps you are wrestling with suffering this morning and having difficulty making sense of your disappointment or your loss or your pain. Perhaps you know someone who's struggling with those questions just now. And if so, this morning's passage and message is especially for you. In it, we're confronted by our hurt and by our confusion. In order to learn a key truth, we may come with confidence to God for help, 
but we may do so only through his Son, Jesus Christ. And that truth is established by three principles from our text that we'll look at in turn. First, apparently bad things happen to apparently good people. The centurion seemed to be a good guy, a good man. Yet one he loved was on the verge of an early death. Uh, by the way, early death. Uh, see, the parallel account has little boy Pidos, and here we have servant, that's a different word, doulos, slave. How can he be a slave and, and a child in the household? Well, he was probably a young man. And the uh, centurion, as often happened, in, we have uh, external uh, texts uh, other than the scriptures that show this in ancient times that often uh, Roman households would uh, take one of uh, or more of their young servants and raise them as their own. It's not unusual. Or sometimes they just treated them with loving fatherly care. So there's a sense in which this text in combination with its parallel tells us that the centurion had a heart. He had a heart for the community around him. He had a heart for this young lad in his household. He had a heart for the worship of the God he respected and whom he had perceived Jesus to represent. That's important. And yet it still happened to him. Here's this little fella. And the scripture says in the original language, he was on the very verge of death. He'd gotten significantly worse and worse, and now his hours were numbered. Simone de Beauvier has uh, written, if there is a God, then he is the devil. It's often attributed to Voltaire. Um, if there's a God, then he's the devil. Why would he write that? Well, you know, he reasoned wrongly. He reasoned that if God was good, he'd do something about all this evil and pain. But he doesn't. So if he's able to do something about it and doesn't choose to do that, he must be sadistic and mean, and that makes him the devil. See, there's no middle ground. You can't have the God of the Bible. Scriptures say, thinking themselves to be wise, they became fools. And we often do that in our philosophy. We have to be very careful. Scripture tells us something very different, a very different picture. The world is no longer Eden, we're taught, but it's fallen. And yet God is at work in the world. But evil and its consequences to all is still endemic to the human experience until Christ comes again. It's only God who can restrain evil and pain, and ultimately, only he can remove it. And by the way, I learned something from my Bantu brothers and sisters in Kenya while I was a short-term missionary there with my family. Our youngest son was born there. And um, I learned this, you see, in the, in the West, we think of suffering as pathological. That is to say, there's something wrong if you suffer. You know, got to fix it. Get over it quickly. But Bantu culture looks at suffering as a condition to be cooked with. Very different thing. 
What does Scripture say about suffering? It says that sometimes God has a purpose in continuing to let his servants suffer. What does Paul say? God gave me a thorn in the flesh. God gave me a thorn in my flesh to buffet me. It's a strong word. It was suffering. Three times I implored the Lord, remove it from me, Paul says. But he said, the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. And Paul learned something about the humility of trusting God through weakness and that God would use him not through the power of his oratory, but through the weakness of his perseverance under trial. And you read of what Paul went through. That's exactly his experience. There are people, brothers and sisters, if you're a believer in Christ, there are people watching you even now if you're going through a time of suffering. See, Jesus did not promise that we would never have suffering, never go through the valley. He promised that when we do, he'd walk with us through the darkest valley of the shadow of death. And then others will be able to see the difference it makes when Jesus walks with someone. Centurion was learning this lesson. Those who watched them were learning that lesson. See, being kind and loving doesn't exempt us from heartache. His little servant, his little child on the verge of death, doing good works for others, being generous even toward God's own people and for God's worship doesn't ensure we will escape pain. Verse 5. Those are the things the elders said he'd done. Why? Well, because of where we stand between Eden and the new Jerusalem. Jesus himself is described in Isaiah chapter 53 as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. God with us in the depths of our experience. Francis Schaeffer speaks of substantial healing from the consequences of sin that the gospel brings but notice he says substantial. He doesn't say complete and final. Why? He implies that the full redemption and healing comes with our resurrection at Christ Jesus' return. Second, we need to recognize that coming to God requires us to recognize our need for his grace. He, the centurion acknowledged, I'm not worthy. The elders had said, he's worthy. The centurion sends other friends. <laughs> he probably knew what might be said by the elders. And he says, I want you to understand, I know that, so I want you to know that I know that I'm not worthy. Not worthy for what? That you should come under my roof. See, our friends and reputation cannot secure God's mercy. We had. The centurion had friends. They were elders among the people that were willingly ready to go and, and advocate for him. Verse 5, he loves our nation, has built our synagogue. His reputation was established. There's a common Australian or Aussie expression. Ah, he's a good Christian. Ah, she's a good Christian. By that they mean, however, not uh, that they have faith in Christ 
and the reference to their Christ-likeness in their life. No, no, no. They use that phrase usually simply to refer to someone who is, quote, a good person, end quote. By what standards? See, it's human nature to want to lower the standards of God's holiness down to our own ability to satisfy them. It's small wonder that those who do so hardly then revere the God, as it were, that they have created in place of Yahweh, the God of the Bible, who is holy. No, we must recognize the holiness of God. Not worthy, he says, says the centurion, that you should come under my roof. Understand that ceremonial uncleanness was considered by Jews to result from entering, even entering a Gentile's home. That's why God had to prepare Peter in the book of Acts before he went into the centurion Cornelius' home. I've never done this. <laughs> Good Jews wouldn't. Good Jews wouldn't in those days. By and large, Jesus would. The centurion recognized it. He knew that a rabbi, and Jesus was recognized as that, would be especially sensitive to such a demand. There was even an inscription on the temple court built by Herod the Great in Jerusalem, court to the Gentiles, and at the edge of that was printed this inscription. Any Gentile who goes any farther from this point will have himself to blame for his own demise, his own resulting death. In other words, proceed on pain of death if you're a Gentile. Stay out. No Gentiles allowed here where we worship God. Now that wasn't, that inscription was never given by God through Moses. That was not part what God had said. Gentiles, yes, in order to come into the holy place, and those priests, in order to participate in, in the Passover, in order to do certain other things, needed to take on themselves the mark of Abraham the, uh, the, and uh, then become part of God's covenant people up to that time. But they were allowed to come close enough to see enacted before them Symbolically, the need for a death of a substitute as the animals were presented, their blood sprinkled on the altar, sins confessed over them. And God said, when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. And they could hear the songs of Zion sung by the antiphonal choirs of the Levites and hear that God had come to redeem and ransom his people. Gentiles could get a glimpse of what was at the heart of the gospel that was now, even now, flowering and coming to full bloom. No, they put beyond the temple courts a court of the men, and beyond the court of the men a court of the women. They were pretty far off. And beyond the court of the women, the court of the Gentiles, and that was the one, by the way, most likely, through which people were passing every day, carrying uh, their commerce as a shortcut. They set up shop. The money changers were there. They sold uh, animals. Many of the animals were defective against the word of God, um, the command of God through Moses. The money changing was done in a... A, a fraudulent way where, where there was, was uh, dishonesty in the amount of exchange and uh, 
They'd made it a den of robbers, but worse, it was to have been a house of prayer for all the nations, God said through Isaiah. No wonder Jesus was angry. We know he was angry. It says he didn't say he was angry. Oh, it described his anger. He makes out of cords a whip, a scourge. You know what a scourge is for. It's not to tap, tap, tap your attention, please, ding, ding, ding on a glass after dinner. No, no, this is a scourge. He upends the tables of the money changers, coins going everywhere, drives out, very strong verb, drives out those who are uh, selling their animals and, and so on, clears the temple. Why does he clear it? Because nobody's supposed to be there? No. So it's supposed to be available so that Gentiles can come at least that far. And see the message of God's grace. And he did that twice. Do you know that? At the beginning of his ministry and again at the very end. And that's again when the leaders of uh, their established religion attempted to plot to kill him. Well, now he's coming. Um, Jesus is coming to the house of the centurion. Jesus, the Holy One, the one representing the Holy God who cannot be approached closely. His presence is in the Ark of the Covenant, which could only be in the Holy of Holies. Only the priest could come to the holy place and only the high priest to the Holy of Holies once a year after first making a sacrifice for his own sin and then for that of the people. Wouldn't be until Jesus' death when that would be cut asunder, opened, and John on Patmos would be able to see in his vision heaven open, and he'd see the temple, the temple doors stand open, he could see right through the holy place entrance, right through the veil it had been parted because he could see the ark of the covenant of God. The way was clear. Jesus had knocked away all the barriers of our sin, of our shortcoming, of our pain, and made way, a straight way to God. The holiness of God is very deep. The centurion had sensed what Peter, the apostle, declared in his fishing boat after the miracle of the draft of fishes, and he falls on his knees before Jesus and says, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O God. And the beautiful thing is that Jesus doesn't. Because step one is recognizing that we don't have merit. The first beatitude is what? Blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't mean that they're spiritually bereft. It means that they recognize that spiritually they're beggars. They have nothing to offer God. They come to God with open hands and say, nothing in my hands I bring simply to thy cross. I cling we need to recognize our need for God's grace. The centurion did. But then notice that receiving God's mercy requires us to come to him through faith in his son. Verse 9, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him and turning to the crowd said that was following him, he said, I tell you the truth, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. 
And the parallel account has Jesus continuing to say, records his words, that there will be some from north and south and east and west, all Gentile nations, some from every tribe and nation and people and tongue who will be at the banquet of the Lamb in glory. But some who count themselves as part of the covenant community, some who are, may I be contemporary, good church people, will be cast out. What's the defining line? Well, these people gave a lot of money, no. These people did a lot of good work. Say, look at the buildings that, no. Well, these people had nice life, no. A good life that reflects Christ is important. But friends, that's the overflow. That's the fruit, not the root. The root is our relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus would say in the upper room, no one comes to the Father except by me. And we must recognize Jesus, God's, and especially exercised through Christ, his power and his authority. The centurion, I used to have a hard time understanding the significance of this as a lad. You know, I'd read this passage and it sounded like, to me like the centurion was bragging, I'm pretty hot stuff. I can really order people around. And that's not what he's saying at all. He's saying, I'm simply a man under orders, under authority, accountable for what I do. And I have been given a commission to do certain things. And in exercise of that authority which has been invested in me by virtue of the one who has given it, I can make these orders and they are carried out. Implication, you are invested with God's power you, Lord Jesus, are the Son of God. You, Lord, are able to speak to that sickness and remove it at a word. You don't have to defile yourself ceremonially in the eyes of the, of the uh, onlookers by coming into my home and under my Gentile roof. He believed it. Jesus, in his human nature and human mind united with his divine nature in the incarnation. But Jesus is amazed. There are several times when Jesus is amazed. It's another time he's amazed, and several others, but one uh, that comes to mind, and that's when we read that he was amazed at their unbelief. <laughs> After he'd done great mighty miracles and preached the word of God. And then we read he was amazed at their unbelief. We can be like that. We can have the benefits of the gospel right in front of us. Uh, the warm, inclusive encouragement of a community of God's people like this one around us. And we can still toss it aside in unbelief. Where are you this morning? God is gracious in his character. Do you believe it? Is your God one who will say, God's going to get you for that? <laughs> God's going to get you for that. Make no mistake, God will eventually call every sin to account. But brother and sister, if, you're, if your faith is in Christ, fear not. He already has. 
on the cross. When Jesus hung and suffered and died, look on him in faith. You are there in the eyes of God. Jesus' death is yours. His huge suffering on the cross is yours. I've had people not infrequently in different parts of the world say to me, oh, I believe that you have your hell in this life, on this earth. I'll tell you what, my friend. You haven't any idea what hell is like until five minutes after your death. If you don't believe in the Lord Jesus, then you'll understand what hell is. There's only one place, only one place in the whole of redemptive history when hell fully breaks forth into this plane of existence. And you know where it is? The cross. When Jesus absorbs in himself willingly the full blast of the fury of a righteous and holy God in his justice against the sins of all his people. But the good news says that the cross is followed by the empty tomb of Easter, the resurrection, that in Christ we are made alive. You're dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. The gospel for the penitent. The gospel for your friends who don't know it and struggle for meaning and significance. The gospel, the treasure to pass on to our children that will enable them to hold firm in a turbulent world disintegrating around our ankles firm are the promises of God to his people. I, he says, will carry you.